Welcome to CMS On Air, the podcast on migration and refugee issues, brought to you by the Center for Migration Studies of New York. I'm Rachel Reyes, CMS's Director of Communications. In this episode, I speak with Joanna Williams, Director of Education and Advocacy for the Kino Border Initiative. KBI is a binational organization in Nogales, Arizona and Nogales, Sonora, Mexico, that works with migrants, educates communities, and advocates for just border and immigration policies. In her role, Joanna serves as the primary coordinator of the educational and advocacy programs offered by KBI in the United States. She also helps develop and realize the organization's advocacy policy and plan. Now here's my conversation with Joanna Williams. Thank you, Joanna, for joining us. It's a pleasure to finally meet you in person and to talk more about your work and the Kino Border Initiative. So to start our discussion, could you introduce the Kino Border Initiative and its mission? Yeah, thanks so much for having me here. It's uh, great to be in New York, a little colder than Arizona. So we at the Kino Border Initiative, we're a binational organization. Uh, we're part of the Catholic Church and we're run part by Jesuits as well as the Missionary Sisters of the Eucharist. And we work in three different dimensions. Uh, so one dimension is humanitarian aid. We try to provide basic services to people in Nogales, Mexico, Oftentimes food, clothing, medical attention with other groups we help with access to phone calls. And then we also work in the dimensions of education and research and advocacy. Because our goal as an organization is to not exist as an organization. And in order to do that, we need to change hearts and minds and structures in society on both sides of the border. Can you tell me more about KBI's activities to provide humanitarian aid, education, and advocacy? So in the humanitarian aid component, we serve three primary groups of people. Uh, one are people who have been living in the United States uh, and they're detained maybe in their homes on their way to work uh, and deported back to Nogales, Mexico. And so when they arrive to our aid center, this is the first time they've been in Mexico for on average 20 years. Then we also serve a group of people who have just now tried to cross the desert. They're, they tried to get into the United States, they were detained by Border Patrol and then they were deported and they're in Nogales, uh, oftentimes without very many resources, as they've spent a lot along their journey, and sometimes their belongings aren't returned to them. And then we also serve people who are coming up from Central America and trying to seek asylum in the United States. There's hundreds of people now who are stranded on the Mexican side of the border, not just in Nogales, but in other sites as well. So people have these basic humanitarian needs. People have to eat. There's uh, Oftentimes medical concerns, either from people who've tried to cross the desert, the heat exhaustion or blisters on their feet, or sometimes more chronic concerns for those deported from within the U.S. Uh, So we rely on volunteer nurses and doctors to assist with those needs and then try to, to the extent possible, meet other forms of humanitarian need. Uh, We really, as an organization, try to let ourselves be guided by what's the reality of the people that we're welcoming in our doors. Of the, the comedor is our main humanitarian aid space. Uh, it means dining room in Spanish. And our hope is that people would walk in and feel like they're at home in a place of a dining room area and that we can d- together can figure out what's the best way to move forward on the humanitarian aid front. And then we also work in the education and advocacy. So some of what that looks like, we receive immersion groups from different parts of the United States to visit the border and understand, listen to the migrants, understand their reality. So just last week, for example, the faculty of Fordham University came down and visited the border. We also do education on the Mexican side of the border because oftentimes 
people in Mexico also have a variety of perceptions of migrants, and we want them to understand their humanity. Uh, so in just a couple of weeks, we're going to do a forum on asylum so that people in Mexico can understand. They hear the news about caravans of people, and we want them to understand better why are people coming up and what does the process look like on either side. And then we do advocacy on either side of the border. On the U.S. side, we've been doing that in collaboration with the Center for Migration Studies. Um, so we're really excited. And later on, I think we'll talk about our the Communities in Crisis report. But there's different opportunities in which the knowledge that we have at the border then can be used to impact policy. Over the past few years, immigration to the United States has often focused on the U.S.-Mexico border, including debates over the need for a border wall, separations of immigrant children from their parents, and many more contentious issues. How have things changed at the border since President Trump took office? So the first change that we saw very dramatically, almost immediately, as soon as President Trump was inaugurated, was the effects of the end of prosecutorial discretion. So for the last years of the Obama administration, we still received people who are deported after having lived in the United States, but it was a comparably low number, and they oftentimes had some sort of criminal record or had been recently in the U.S. Uh, and all of a sudden, in the beginning of 2017, we started to see a dramatic increase, more than double the number of parents of U.S. citizen kids deported. And... I'll talk a little bit more later on about the report, but the effect when people arrive in Mexico then is that they don't have a place to call home. I remember talking to a woman just a couple months ago who was deported from Phoenix, who had lived 30 years in Phoenix, and she said, well, I'm theoretically from Chihuahua, but I don't have any family, I don't have anywhere to go to in that space. And so it's really had to reshape the way that we think about our work, because we've oftentimes seen ourselves as a more transition place. So somebody who crossed the desert and then was detained and deported, they might be moving back on to southern Mexico to go back to their homes. And now we're receiving people who don't know where home is. And we have to think about how can we help people reintegrate into Nogales, Sonora, and how do we accompany people through this deep emotional pain of family separation. So that's one dramatic change from 2016 to 2017 and on. And then more recently, since mid-May of last year, what we've witnessed is more and more asylum seekers who are stranded in Nogales, Sonora. So we've always received people seeking asylum in the U.S., um, but it's been a pretty small component of those that we serve. In mid-May of last year, Customs and Border Protection started to tell people that they were at capacity and that they had to wait in Mexico for their turn to present at the port of entry, uh, which theoretically or legally, <laughs> that when somebody arrives at the port of entry and says that they're afraid, they should be processed into the asylum process. But instead, they're made to wait in Mexico. And now we have people waiting almost two months in Nogales, Mexico. And, and so there's the, just the needs of legal orientation. The humanitarian needs, obviously, are still uh, prevalent. We've had more families. We've never served that many women and children until this moment. Now the majority of the people that we're serving are women and children. And are most of these families from Central America? It's a, actually a large portion of the families are coming from southern Mexico. I think that's something the U.S. public doesn't realize is that there's certainly a lot of violence in Central America and reasons, uh, push factors that force people to leave there. But the state of Guerrero in particular in Mexico has become incredibly dangerous, in part because of the demand for drugs in the United States. So now heroin is manufactured in Guerrero. And as rival groups fight for that territory, they've displaced entire towns with the violence. I remember talking to one mom who was coming up with her kids who said literally bullets were flying on the street as I was trying to get my kids into the bus to come up to the U.S. 
so violence is not just an issue of Central America, but certainly an issue of Southern Mexico and particularly Guerrero recently. I think about 50% of the people we're serving who are asylum seekers are actually Mexican. Do you think the intense focus on Central American migrants has affected or even detracted from other populations, such as migrants from Southern Mexico? I think in general, the structure of our asylum system is making most people suffer, and it's hard to control what are the degrees of suffering of different populations. What I can say is that it's incredibly difficult for Mexicans to win asylum. They're much less likely to be represented by attorneys, so a lot of the legal support that's been built up, the legal infrastructure is focusing more on Central Americans. And it's incredibly difficult for them to prove that they can't live in some other part of Mexico, because that's one of the requirements for asylum. So I think it's not a recent trend. I think the asylum system in general is is designed mostly for people to fail, and very particularly also for Mexican asylum seekers to fail. And it's it's an interesting tension we experience at the border. We have a partnership with the Florence Project, which provides legal services and legal orientations, both in detention, but then through our partnership in Nogales, Mexico. And the people that I encounter in Nogales, Mexico, have so much more faith in our government and, and in our system than, than I do sometimes. They think, well, I'm going to go to court and it's going to be fair and they're going to see that, the, you know, they're going to see the proof that I'm bringing. I'm going to get a fair day in court. And it's, I think, in, in the one hand, I can be cynical about that and say, well, it actually, the, the court is designed for it to not be fair. You're not going to be represented. The government is going to be represented. They're going to have an attorney. But I think it's also a good reminder for me of what if I did could have a little bit more faith in our system because our our court system could be fair. Our immigration courts could be reformed. There's a strong tradition of due process that we can revive here in the U.S. and uh, and so I'm in part because of that I remain hopeful and and want to see how can we move forward and take the faith of the asylum seekers that we know and uh, use that to motivate research and advocacy. So you mentioned that since May 2018. People seeking asylum in the United States have been told they have to wait in Mexico for their turn to present at a port of entry. In late January 2019, the Trump administration implemented a new policy, which it calls the Migrant Protection Protocols, and others call the Remain in Mexico policy. Under this policy, when nationals from Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador present themselves to Customs and Border Protection agents to apply for asylum in the United States, they are given a U.S. immigration court date to start their asylum case and then return to Mexico to wait. How has this new policy affected your work? And what kind of issues do you anticipate with further expansion of this policy? Yeah, it's a complicated reality, and it's really important to make the distinction between these two policies. So the one policy we call turn backs is when they're being told to wait for their turn to just be initially processed into the port of entry. And that's that approximately two-month wait that I'm referring to in Mexico. Now at certain ports of the border, uh, particularly San Isidro, uh, which is in California at the Tijuana border, some of the asylum seekers who are processed into the port, as you mentioned, are then returned back to Mexico waiting for their court dates in the U.S. It hasn't been implemented yet in Nogales. Um, Right now it's just San Isidro, and then the next site will be El Paso Juarez. But we're deeply concerned about it, just from what we've witnessed and how the rollout has uh, been in Tijuana. There's no way to keep asylum seekers safe as they're waiting in Mexico. In essence, what this policy would demand is a refugee camp in Mexico, and nobody is putting in the resources or the infrastructure or the thought to actually construct that. (laughs) So there's the basic humanitarian needs component, there's safety, 
Uh, and then we're deeply concerned also about uh, access to due process. Uh, so what we've seen in Tijuana is already the few legal services organizations that existed, like Al Otro Lado, have already been overwhelmed in just trying to or give some basic orientations. But when you're returning somebody to wait for their court date in the U.S., then they need a lawyer who's willing to prepare their entire asylum case. And that's a stretch in Southern California to have that many resources. It's impossible in Nogales, Sonora, uh, because we're not even located next to a, a city that has large resources of immigration lawyers. Um, we're an hour away from Tucson, which has a few overstretched immigration attorneys. And so to ask an attorney to prepare a full legal case for a client who's in Mexico is just not practical because there aren't attorneys who are able to do that. And it's not something that can be done remotely because asylum is so complicated because people's trauma is so layered. It's really important that attorneys be present in person and they're not able to travel in Mexico. And the other dynamic we're seeing is that the U.S. government and the Mexican government have been harassing attorneys and journalists as they've crossed the border. So adding extra impediments to that kind of legal representation. So in many ways, we just see it as, as impractical from a safety perspective, from a humanitarian aid perspective, and especially from a due process perspective. And right now, the policy has been challenged in court, and we're waiting to see whether the judge will have a, a decision on that issue, a preliminary injunction. But I think it's really important that we not just wait for the court process. <laughs> I think it's critical that we as an American public address this issue as, as something that's not in line with our values. And I think it's critical that the Mexican government speak out more forcefully. Because the Mexican government has said that they're opposed to the policy, but they're taking actions to make it possible to implement it because they believe that this is just a temporary policy. And what we're seeing is this is a long-term policy from the U.S.'s perspective. This is the, where they want to move in immigration. And the Mexican government needs to hold a firm line and say that this is not in Mexico's interest. What are the risks people face by being required to remain and wait in Mexico? So compared to other parts of the border, Nogales Sonora is slightly safer, um, but that's all in relative terms. And what we've been concerned about is as there's more and more people who are in Nogales, it just exposes folks more to violence by organized crime, especially when they're in unstable shelter situations, so not in the more traditional shelters in town. Uh, but as they're moving into different places, there's not that safety in, in, in an institution, as it were. The other concern that comes from overcrowding is medical issues. This is something we've seen reported a lot on the U.S. side. Uh, so challenges with access to medical care in uh, CBP custody, Customs and Border Protection custody. But the problems actually in some ways start from the overcrowding in Mexico. So we do have volunteer nurses and doctors who try to treat medical issues as they come up. But because there's so many people in small spaces, it's easier for diseases that would have otherwise been controlled to spread. And so now there are more people who are going into CBP custody who are sicker than they otherwise would have been if they had just been processed the first day that they arrived in the city. Now instead, they've been in Nogales for a month and a half and got chicken pox. And now Customs and Border Protection has to expend more resources to provide medical attention. So it's it's a policy that's creating, by Customs and Border Protection delaying people in Mexico, they're creating more work for themselves and creating these medical need that we've never seen. It's been pretty unprecedented in Nogales to have so many people in uh, medical distress. 
So recently, two Guatemalan children, seven-year-old Jacqueline and eight-year-old Philippe, tragically died while in the custody of U.S. Border Patrol. Both children were from indigenous communities, which are often overlooked or forgotten in national narratives about immigrants to the United States. Could you tell me about your experience or encounters with immigrants and asylum seekers from indigenous backgrounds? Yeah, that's a, been a growing reality. Actually, over the course of the last several years, this hasn't been recent that indigenous communities have been fleeing because uh, so oftentimes we'll hear from people that people are targeted specifically for being indigenous. Um, there was a, a dad and his, his son who was 18 who talked about having to flee because the gangs told him that he that because he was indigenous, he was like trash, he was disposable. And so there's specific violence targeted at them. And many of the people in indigenous communities, they have lower education levels, they haven't had the opportunity to attend school, and they haven't learned another language other than their original language, for example, mom or quiche or some of the more common languages in Guatemala. And there isn't robust access to interpretation. When we've talked to Customs and Border Protection, they insist that if somebody asks for an interpreter, then we'll provide them with an interpreter. And we've never actually heard of anybody who's gotten access to an interpreter within custody. And and this came out in really dramatic terms with these two kids who died, because if if somebody had been able to communicate with the parents in their own language, then they might have been able to avoid uh, what had happened. And and instead, what Customs and Border Protection does when somebody comes in, the officer or the agent will just say, well, can we proceed in Spanish? And somebody who speaks as an indigenous language, who has already been marginalized in their community because they speak an indigenous language, doesn't even know that they have a right to insist that they receive communication in their language. They just accept that there's no way that I'll understand or be able to communicate and I'll just try to get through as best as I can. And, and I think it's hard for us as an organization. We feel very inadequate in, a, in this response. So it's one thing for us to, we do criticize the government for not having access to interpreters, but we also don't have access to interpretation. And we struggle when people come in and only speak indigenous languages to try to explain to them what they're going to face in the process, give them the kind of legal orientation that they deserve to receive. And when we don't speak the language, we know that we're not doing an adequate job of communicating that, you know, whether that's drawing pictures or trying to find other forms of communication. What we really need to work more on language access, both within the government, but also within NGOs. So let's now turn to the report. The Center for Migration Studies was honored to collaborate with the Kino Border Initiative and the Jesuit Conference's Office of Justice and Ecology on the report, Communities in Crisis, Interior Removals, and Their Human Consequences. This report examines the characteristics of deportees and the effects of deportation based on interviews conducted with deportees at KBI's migrant shelter in Nogala, Sonora, and those affected by deportation in Catholic parishes in Florida, Michigan, and Minnesota. Could you explain the purpose of the report and describe some of the key findings, especially those that most surprised you? Yeah, we're also honored to work on this report. We really admire the Center for Migration Studies and just the scholarship uh, here that very much made this report possible. I think part of the motivation for the report is that we were seeing these people arriving separated from their kids and had the sense that this is a growing reality and wanted to understand what's the scale of the impact on families and on communities in the U.S. And it was striking to us that the report found that on average, people lived in the United States for almost 20 years before their deportation. And in particular, that 78% had U.S. citizen kids. So 78% of the people arriving deported after having lived in the United States left their children behind. Their children were born in the U.S. 
And there were also people who were really well integrated into the labor market. So the vast majority were employed and they had worked almost 10 years at the same job. So it's not this kind of turnover that we would imagine in this. I think when people have a picture of immigrants, they're thinking about day laborers. Um, but really, they were people who were working very consistently at a con- single construction company or in a single restaurant over the course of many years. And the moment of deportation is devastating to all of those community and economic ties. People, before we worked on the report, people expressed to us some of that economic anxiety. But then to, to find that when people were deported, they had on average only $142 uh, in their pockets with them. That's not even enough to buy a bus ticket to f- southern Mexico. It's barely enough to eat for a couple of weeks in Nogales, let alone rent a place. And especially that 74% said that their spouses didn't have enough money to support their children. So there's many of the people who are deported because they've been so well integrated, they're working. Then when they're deported, that's removing that f- source of income from uh, the family. The person who arrives in Mexico is now in need of economic support, but the family in the U.S. no longer has enough to pay rent or to pay for the car or many of the other expenses that come up as their spouse struggles to take care of their children. And especially revealing to me was this lack of identification with Mexico. Uh, So 45% said that they only identified a little or not at all with their country of birth. It's interesting for me, I was one of the ones who was doing the interviews and I would ask people, you know, how do you do you feel Mexican? Do you feel like you're you're American? And they would say, I just, I don't know if I can feel Mexican because I haven't been in Mexico for so long. And so that very strong desire to return to the U.S. was is well justified. I think in, in the report we see, of course, if you have your family, if you have your community, if you have your job, you don't identify culturally as Mexican, then how is it even possible to integrate into Mexico? So in in many ways, the report put numbers and statistics and understanding to some initial observations that we'd had and has helped us reflect more deeply on, A, what's the effect of our policy in the U.S. and how we in the United States are actually harming our own country in our deportation policy. Um, We're setting up kids for failure by taking away their parents. And B... We need to be more and more creative from the church perspective, from the civil society perspective of how do we support families in the United States and how do we help people who arrive in Mexico start to integrate or start to think about next steps. So what key recommendations would you highlight from the report? Well, overall, we need to overhaul our immigration system in a way that respects human dignity and family unity, uh, particularly catching up on some of the family visa backlogs, providing a pathway to citizenship for people in the United States who don't have documents. But even short of that, I think this, the report pointed to several different opportunities. Uh, We urgently need to re-implement prosecutorial discretion. There were challenges with prosecutorial discretion, but certainly the last years of the Obama administration were less damaging than these first years of the Trump administration have been because of the end of prosecutorial discretion. So re-implementing prosecutorial discretion and uh, using alternatives to detention instead of detention itself. And, and that's right now, you know, we published this report and I think Immigration Customs Enforcement was detaining about an average daily population of f- over 40,000. Now they're detaining 50,000 people on any given day. 
So we're expending a lot of resources to hold people who have deep community ties in detention instead of in the community. And from the church perspective, because the report also makes recommendations to, to churches oh, and, and to local communities, was stri- another piece that was striking to us was the role of the local police. That 65% of the deportations started with interaction with police. So it's really important that police revamp their own policies and restrict calls to immigration enforcement. We saw this just last week in Tucson, that's a, that a family was pulled over by the highway patrol and then border patrol was called And within 24 hours, the dad was deported back to Mexico. And that was just a family on their way home in southern Tucson. And the churches can respond. Churches oftentimes see ministry more from a pastoral perspective. Uh, We'll make sure to provide the sacraments, baptism, first communion. And what we saw through this report, and it involved a lot of interviews in parishes, was a really deep need for churches to look at their ministry holistically and think about access to attorneys, think about access to social services. How do I come? Ar- we come around these families who are being torn apart by deportation and make sure that they know that they're critical members of our community. Uh, so there's a lot that we, uh, as churches, in particular the Catholic Church, can do on this front. I expect that advocating and aiding immigrants from a conservative state like Arizona can be challenging. Can you describe some of the public opposition or support KBI has experienced? So in some ways, I think that this is a moment of moral reckoning for people. Uh, We've seen a lot of folks come out of the woodwork who do want to be supportive and want to take action because they're starting to realize what this country is doing to human beings (laughs) and saying, well, I don't want to be a part of this. Uh, So we do see an outpouring of support both on the advocacy front as well as uh, financial support for KBI. Uh, so that we can function and continue to serve meals. Um, but we, uh, I think sometimes people in Arizona in particular, but also in other parts of the country, they want to support the humanitarian aid. So it's great that you're giving a plate of food, but then become concerned about the policy recommendations because they don't want to be too political. And our belief is that policy is, the, the even the word policy comes from this idea of humans gathering um, into a polity. And so there is no way to, to support human dignity and not then make some sort of political declaration. It doesn't have to be a partisan, but it, action that in support of other human beings is inherently political. Uh, and we see that the advocacy that we do naturally flows out of the humanitarian aid that we provide. So sometimes it's a process of bringing people along a little bit and understanding that I can't sit here and listen to a dad's story of being separated from his kids and give him a plate of food and say that that's it, because that plate of food is not what he needs. <laughs> it's, it's one piece, one very, very tiny sliver of what he needs in that moment. And so that's really where the, the opportunities for growth come in. Uh, I think most people in the United States and in Mexico, when faced with a human being, want to be able to provide something or, or be generous but it's starting to help people understand that that generosity isn't just needed in the moment, but is also needed in our policies and in our systems. Looking forward, what are KBI's next steps? For example, what policies do you plan to address? What research would you like to pursue? Well, we have great hopes for future collaboration with the Center for Migration <laughs> Studies. Um, I think that uh, we will, this report will continue to be useful. It's a really great resource um, for conversations locally and federally. Um, we want to continue to think about the role of the asylum system, some of the dynamics we're seeing right now at the border with metering and remain in Mexico. 
how is the danger in Mexico affecting asylum seekers? Um, in particular, the area that I think has been under-researched is the asylum seekers who are coming from Mexico. So the push factors of violence and how that's connected also to U.S. policy regarding drugs and guns. And so that's that's maybe a, an area for future collaboration, given the uh, folks that we're receiving right now in the Comilón. So KBI is also working to open a new migrant outreach center. Um, could you tell me more about the plans for this new facility? Many, many years in the coming. <laughs> so we've been working on this for years and years, trying to acquire land, trying to find a place to build. We finally are working on the remodel, hopefully opening maybe late this year. And it's just going to be incredible. Right now we have our comedor, our dining room, but that will have a much larger space for dining as well as a shelter, as well as actual private offices in which an attorney could actually meet <laughs> with somebody and, and, or a psychologist could meet with somebody in privacy. And so it, I think people will just feel more safe. They'll feel more dignified. They'll feel more at home, hopefully, in this space of the shelter. It's going to be a big undertaking. We're still you know, working on raising money for the, the construction and trying to think about how will we even staff <laughs> this space. Um, but I have great hope for how people will feel, the migrants will feel when they walk in and know that they're not just kind of cramped into a small place, but they have a, a, a place of a little bit more dignity and home. So do you have any final comments you'd like to add to our conversation? I think it's, I'm just really grateful to be here in New York. It's um, Sometimes we can feel very isolated at the border and knowing that we have partners like the Center for Migration Studies, knowing that people around the country and the world are concerned, that gives us hope and believe, makes us believe that we can, we can make a change here. <laughs> I'm hopeful that uh, we can have a little bit more dignity, more family unity. I hope that we can provide better opportunities for people in Nogales as well. Really, my hope is that people wouldn't have the need to migrate, um, that we'd be able to address some of these challenges so that people can stay in their own home communities. Because I talked to so many people, remembering a, a woman from Honduras who just came this year, who said, I never had an American dream. I never had the intention of going to the United States. And I never even understood why other people did until I was forced to. So the, the goal here is not to create more American dreams. <laughs> the goal is that people can be able to stay in their own communities. Thank you so much, Joanna. Yeah, thank you. To stay connected with the Kino Border Initiative, visit them at kinoborderinitiative.org. There you can also read, watch, and listen to moving migrant stories, as well as support KBI's work under their ACT section, which provides advocacy suggestions and an opportunity to donate. Follow Kino Border Initiative on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. CMS On Air's theme music is provided by Danny Duberstein and The Music Case. To download the Communities in Crisis report and get more information on CMS's research, publications, and events, visit us at cmsny.org.